So who's glad that you had two weeks to do your lesson? Because it was 12 chapters. Did you count those? <laughs> who's, who started it like yesterday? Okay, let, thank you for the honesty. <laughs> that was a big one to do. <laughs> so that was the ex- assignment. It was J- essentially Jacob's life from before his birth t- through to the death of his father, Isaac, and a, a little bit on either end. Um, and I'll admit, I came to this story and this, these 12 chapters with some preconceived notions because I grew up in the church, and so I've read these stories. I've heard them. I know them, um, sort of, right? Maybe like some of you. Um, but I haven't studied them. And again, let's be honest, we're not going really deep in these stories. We're doing a massive flyby, right? Um, and a massive flyby of these books or these chapters in Genesis that are already a massive flyby of these individuals' lives, right? So we're just seeing snapshots of Isaac and Abraham and Jacob's lives. So um, each week, I feel like as we've been studying Genesis, each week we dig into the scripture and we learn from one another and and actually, often, we come away, for me, I come away many times with more questions than I have, we have answers for. Does anybody else feel that way? <laughs> um, okay, yes. And um, I actually feel like this is pretty exciting. I'm excited that we are studying Genesis this year, and we're digging into some of these hard things. And um, as we do that, I, I, I love, I think it's what Hebrews 4.12 means when it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It says the word of God is living and active, which means every time we read it, when we were kids, all the way through, there's something new. Maybe it's our circumstances. Maybe it's a new way the Holy Spirit is teaching us. Maybe it's new revelation. Maybe it's someone in our life that's speaking. There's so many things that change, right? The Holy Spirit is always teaching us new things. And so here we are studying 12 chapters of Genesis again together this year. And so when I realized that that's what we would be talking about today, I thought, okay, I'm going to listen to it on audio first and just see if I can kind of immerse myself in this narrative. And so my husband and I were on a little road trip and I roped him in. I said, we're going to listen to these chapters. Okay, let's listen. Don't you want to learn about Jacob? And he was in for about six chapters. (laughs) And about that time, we were both going, oh my goodness, he is a mess. And we turned it off because we were... This is really disturbing. And um, I later came back and, of course, listened to the rest. And it was still a little disturbing. Jacob's life was still um, quite a mess. Because for me, the reason it was disturbing, I feel like I've grown up thinking that, uh, of Jacob as a hero of the faith. Um, because, you know, he's named in Hebrews as a hero of the faith. And I, I haven't spent very much time, and this is on me, really reading some of these more intricate, intricate details of his story in Genesis, um, and, and I found myself kind of wondering, are we, does anybody talk about these, these confusing things? Is it okay to talk about the strange customs and the devious behaviors of the heroes of the faith? Um, if we brush over them, does that mean that God thinks they're okay? He was okay with it? Uh, these are the things that I was thinking and wondering. Um, is it okay to call out and ask questions like why and how and what, is, what if there just isn't a clear-cut answer? Or what if I don't actually agree with the people around me in church? 
Like, these are some of the things that I was thinking. And in the past, I really haven't looked very closely at some of these things that were strange to me. Um, and because I really wasn't sure what to do with the questions that they stirred up. I don't know if maybe you're, you're similar to me in this at all. I, I know that in most of the groups that I've sat in on over the last couple of weeks in Genesis or in our leader circle even, there are so many times that we're all like, what? Really? And so um, now, here we are studying it. And um, in the past when I haven't really dug into them, that's because, thankfully, understanding these stories is not required for faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. And that is the truth. Understanding all of these details is not um, required for faith. So, but now that we're digging in, um, I began listening, and then I read, and then I reread, and then I read a few commentaries and talked with people and started to just mull over some of these questions like I've just shared with you. And I'm so grateful because as I pressed into some of the messy parts of Jacob's story, um, I feel like God started to just open my eyes to new perspective on on this story and on his narrative in the Bible. And and instead of um, being maybe discouraged or confused, I just asked him to to please just show me what he wanted me to see about him. So I feel like God just changed my perspective and, inst- and changed the questions I was asking as I was studying it. So that's what I'm hoping to share with you today. I f- God has been so faithful, as he is, to give me some new eyes to see. And, and he's knocking down some of the boxes that I've had him in and his word in for throughout my journey and it's exciting and it's liberating and it's causing great conversations um, all about God that is really fun to be a part of and you know the reality is that we are finite individuals living in a finite world where we've had to construct ways of living that make sense for us as we have to be in relationships with other people and we have to you know, we have to interact, and, and our finite brains can, and, and beings can only handle so much. But God is not. He is infinite. He is not constrained by human structures, and we will see that in our stories, the, the glimpses that we'll see today. He's not constrained by limited resources or understanding. And so as I share a little bit about um, what I saw in Jacob, I hope that it will be an opportunity for all of us to just look at the goodness and grace of our God, who is always intervening in the creation that he loves. So my hope is you'll be encouraged in your faith as we spotlight God as the really the only hero. There, there are some heroes of the faith, but only because God is the hero of it all. So the truth is that God's character shines brightly amongst the backdrop of human experience. And we will get to see this today as we look at um, Jacob's life and those around him. And God's, God's the one that's going to shine brightly. So in my kind of mulling over of over the last couple of weeks, I feel like I've been able to clump my ahas into maybe three buckets <laughs> that I'm calling lenses. Um, so three lenses to consider... Uh, that will hopefully help us in this spotlighting of God. And so when we turn to the text in a few minutes, we'll use these questions uh, in a couple instances to just help us dig in. But I'll share with you first what they are. So the first one is to consider asking ourselves, what were the original authors communicating about God in that unique moment in history? And so what I mean by this is that this, when we look at Jacob, it is about one person or a people in his case. 
And we have to keep in mind that each story in the Bible is from a time and a place and a culture that is not our reality today. The customs and the traditions and the behaviors don't pertain to us at all. Um, They're foreign concepts from thousands of years ago. As well, the narrative is just very high level, like I just said a minute ago. It's an overview containing very few details. And instead, it highlights this kind of high and low points of individuals' lives along the way. And we have to remember, too, that since the Garden of Eden, every moment in history has been less than God's perfect plan. And so the ways that humans have lived throughout the history of the world is flawed. So I don't know about you, but that, when I, when I just really understood that, it, it helped me understand that everything we read in the Bible was actually just flawed existence, just like it is in our world today, right? So that was their moment of history. And it's important for us to remember that Genesis is not a detailed history book. I think we know that, but important to call out. It provides a a snapshot, just a slice of history. It's also not a play-by-play rule book for Christian living. It's not an exhaustive account of all the people who have been pursued by God over the course of time. It is um, actually, Genesis in particular, is a narrative of God's grace to intervene in the world and draw people toward himself through limited humans, humans in a finite world. So I think this is important to call out because when we um, study Genesis, we have to be careful not to impose our modern day filters or moral compass on, on this ancient moment in history. We can be free of the tendency we might have, I know I have had it, to judge ancient people and their customs. Um, When we press into their messy stories and look at things that seem strange to us, it's just, it's wise, I think, to not allow ourselves to be distracted by the customs and what was going on there. But remember that God is not bound by those customs or behaviors, just like he's not bound by ours today. So his character is the only constant throughout all of time. And... um, Except there is one more constant. The other constant is the fact that man will continue to rebel, right? And continue to live flawed until Jesus comes back. So we each have our own unique slice in history. And today we'll look at Jacob's. The second lens that I hope will be helpful for us today is to consider what were the original authors communicating about God's plan to redeem people to himself. So his plan to redeem the world, and stick with me on this, it's a little bit... It's a little bit nitpicky, but um, his plan to redeem the world was through a group of people culminating in his son, Jesus. So that meant that he, Jesus came as a human baby, which meant he, he came from one mom and one earthly father, one family, one line back through tracing through history. So there had to be one line because he, he came in human form. And God's plan, because God's plan included a people. And these are the people we study in the Bible. So it is a people that we study. These are the people of Israel of whom Jacob is the father. They were set apart and they were the living testimony to God's intervening work. But the only reason they were special was because God chose them. He determined to use them and he's faithful. As we know, he established a covenant with Abraham, which passed to Isaac. And then, as we see today, passes to Jacob. So... Calling out this fact of the Bible and God's chosen people has stirred up another question for me that maybe it did for you too, which is what about the people who weren't chosen? I'm, I'm just saying it. Some people are, are concerned. We don't, this is a difficult topic. 
But in the Bible, we actually read about many other people, some of which are likely to have believed in the one true God, like Ishmael and Esau. So when I read about them, um, it was interesting to note that upon the death of both Abraham and then later Jacob, I'm sorry, Esau, that when we read about Abraham's death, the next chapter outlined Ishmael's descendants. And then when we read about the death of Isaac, the next chapter outlines Esau's descendants. So there are, it caused me to think, wow, those men, Ishmael and Esau, grew up in households that served the one true God. You know, Jacob and Esau grew up in the same house, and Isaac was a faithful, obedient man, as we studied a bit this week. And so it stands to reason that Esau knew about God and possibly trusted and believed in him. And so that just causes me to go, wow, there are, there are other people that were not, they were mentioned in the Bible but not followed throughout the Bible that probably, that hopefully, possibly, believed in God. And that makes me just grateful. That, that causes me to think, oh, let's remember that what we're studying is one line, one group of people in the Bible. So it's important to consider this, I think, because it reminds me not to look at the man or the woman in history. God's decision to use humans in his plan of redemption was grace, period. The fact that he said, hey, I want to use these guys at all was grace <laughs> um, and has been for the history you know, of humanity. Um, therefore, I think it's okay to look at Jacob's failings and not have our faith rocked. We talked about this a little bit in our, in our leader group just a bit ago. It's not earth-shattering to imagine that there may have been others who walked with God but aren't followed in the narrative of the Bible. The beauty of the Bible is that it's God's story as he intervenes in the lives of people and in the ebbs and flows of human existence. And his pursuit is for his beloved and for his glory. So as we study Jacob today, it's, it's the spotlight, it's the highlight of the ebb and flow of Jacob's 147 years, but it's God's character that shines brightly, as our truth said earlier. So the third lens that I think hopefully will help us in talking today about Jacob is to consider what are the original authors communicating about God's character. So this is when we get to just look to God and say, wow, what do we learn about him in this story? Which I think is the goal all throughout the Bible, right? What do we learn about our loving God? So the fulfillment of the promise is not dependent on the character of each human. Praise God. (laughs) Um, But I have to admit, too often I have read parts of the Bible, passages, stories in the Bible, and I have thought about it from the standpoint of, hmm, what does this person have in common with me? Or or maybe not have in common with me. Or maybe I have asked myself, what does this story have to teach me right now, as if it was my play-by-play guidebook or rule book? Um, This time around, I've been really excited to instead ask this question that I just said is, what, are, what is this story communicating about God? Not through my own filter or my own... Now, all of it is relevant to our lives. That is not to say it's not relevant or applicable. But after all, it is God's character that hasn't changed since Jacob's time. That's the part that is our firm foundation. So we're going to look at that today. And we'll start right now. Um, we're going to talk uh, about some highlights. But I, I chose just six um, moments in this narrative, 12 chapters. Now, I'm not going in depth. You'll be relieved to know. 
because there was a lot of them. But I've just chosen six, and I'm sure you could read these, this story, and you probably picked out other moments that you could see God's grace in Jacob's story or in the stories of the different individuals that are mentioned all throughout these, these chapters. Um, but uh, for two of these moments, we'll dig a little bit deeper using the lenses that I just shared. So to get us started in Genesis 25, I noted that just the mere conception of Jacob and Esau was a grace of God because Re- Rebekah conceived after barrenness and then the Lord promised that the older would serve the younger. So chapter 25, 21 says that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So much like Sarah, this promise had been given, but then these men are thinking, well, what are we going to do? My wife is barren, and he pled with the Lord, and it was a big deal. Offspring, as we heard from Sam several weeks ago, having offspring was everything. And, of, and especially with the promise that had been given to Isaac and Rebekah. And so here she conceived. And then when... Rebecca, imagine her. I just love imagining these moments in history where she's pregnant with twins and they're wrestling inside of her. And then she, she calls upon the Lord and says, what's going on with my body? And he says, the older shall serve the younger. So we see here that even before Jacob's birth, God had determined a path. And it would go through Jacob. So then um, that, of course, Rebecca knew, knew that that promise from the Lord. And that then brings us to this moment of the stolen blessing. So we see Jacob, with Rebekah's help, deceiving Isaac, and he tricks him into giving the blessing that was due Esau. So let's, let's read that as a reminder. Chapter 27, 28 through 29. It says, May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So we see God's grace was not dependent on the human custom of birthright. So this is an example of how customs from that moment in time are customs that we do not know today. His grace was not dependent on the way they did things back then. It wasn't dependent on fairness or honesty. He worked his plan despite the character of Jacob or the order of his birth. And he actually providentially uses all kinds of human actions, good, bad, mixed, to carry out his promised purposes for all time, right? So then we turn to um, one that I loved, Jacob's dream at Bethel. So at this point, he's stolen the blessing. He's on the run from Esau. He's left his family. There's broken relationships all around. And he's, he's now leaving Esau and his family and in pursuit of a wife from his mother's brother's family, from Laban. Um, and at this time, he finds himself alone. I'm just picturing him. He has been a mama's boy, right? He likes to stay indoors. He probably doesn't actually know how to hunt. Remember, he had to, um, his brother was the hunter. And here he is by himself, running for his life and going 400 miles until he reaches the family he's, he's, he's supposed to find out there somewhere. <laughs> and I picture him laying down, and it says that he, um, it says that he laid his, to rest his head on a stone. And I thought this was so funny because I, when I've read that before, does anybody go, really, a stone? I mean, that's not what you rest your head on. 
But do you know that I learned that it was customary that they rested their heads, often their headrests were metal. And so even that little small example is another example of how we don't even understand what life was then. We cannot, I cannot sit here and go, come on, that's not a pillow. I need a pillow. He surely needed a pillow. He didn't. He apparently didn't. They were way tougher back then. Um, So anyways, I just thought that was so interesting. And in this moment, God intervenes through a dream. So I'm actually going to just read verses 13 through 15. It says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you live, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I've got to read that again. It says, for I I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That is God's grace. He's he's telling what he's going to do, and then he's going to stay with them, and then he's not leaving until he, God, does it. Jacob is, it's not dependent on Jacob. So to dive a little bit deeper, because this is such a cool moment, um, I want, I'd love for us to look at those three lenses as a way to kind of deconstruct. So we ask ourselves first, what were the original authors communicating about this moment in history in Jacob's life? So in this moment, we see that God was so personally confirming that the Abrahamic covenant would in fact come through him. So this was no longer a promise that was given to his grandfather and his father. It was now Jacob confirmed. And if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first time that Jacob and God have, have connected and had this kind of conversation, right? This is the first moment that Jacob has personally learned, heard from God. And Jacob's response was faith. He said, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. Now, some may say that there was a little negotiating included in this faith. Like, if God will give me this and this and this, then he will be my God. But I prefer to read it that Jacob is saying, I believe, I have faith. You will be my God. And that is, that is a mile marker, a milestone in Jacob's, in Jacob's walk, in his experience. Faith. So then we can apply our next lens that says, what were the original authors communicating about God's redemptive plan? So his dream, let's talk about his dream. His dream depicts a ladder between earth and heaven. And angels of God were ascending and descending on this ladder. So I think we can see that the plan may be twofold. Um, it's way more complex than twofold, but for our purposes, remember we're finite. Um, <laughs> and we can see that this, this was part of God's promise, that Jacob's family would be the ladder of redemption as an example of God intervening with his people. So verse 15 says, Behold, I am with you and keep you wherever you go. So this relationship that God is having with Israel is actually the means by which all of the world would get to see God pursuing his people. Whereas before they had not, right? This is new. Um, God revealed himself through these people. And for generations, the oral testimony of God's creation of the world, establishment of his set-apart people, 
and his provision and his direction and his pursuit of his people would be passed down through Israel. So even today, here we are, we're studying Genesis. We are still, Israel is still our example of how God intervened and worked in grace in in a group of people. And it had not been done before. And so we are still studying what was being done between God and Jacob at that moment. And, And they were the latter. Jacob's family, later called Israel, was that ladder, that, that connection point. Um, and it was under this tree at Bethel that God gave Jacob that vision of what was to come through his line. So then the second part of that twofold plan is that it was prophecy. And we got to see that in, in John 1.51. I believe this was in our lesson this week. John 1.51 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So later in the New Testament, they are proclaiming what was said at this moment in Genesis to Jacob. This moment was a prophecy of this coming Messiah and that Jesus would be the latter that would connect and give human individuals opportunity to be in right relationship with God. So, isn't that beautiful? The latter. So then we apply our next lens, and this is when we get to learn, learn and, and just call out what we learn about God's character from this particular moment in history. Again, I'm just, I just, off the top of my head as I was studying, these are some things that I thought we, we, would, we learned about God's character in this moment, but you could keep going, I'm sure. You can keep adding. He is ever-present. He was with Jacob in his sojourning and his fleeing and 400 miles by himself. God was with him. He's sovereign. He's orchestrating his plan at all times. My husband often says he's weaving his tapestry, and I think that's so great because tapestry kind of winds and weaves, and there's, there's paths, that, paths that maybe weren't intended at the, at the beginning, and God is sovereign working in all of that. His promises don't fail. The promise given to Isaac was passed along and now confirmed to Jacob. And his faithfulness is not dependent on the behavior, the heart, or the circumstances of his people. He's kind. He gave Jacob this vision, and how kind is is that of him? He said, here Jacob was about, as we're going to see in a minute, he was about to enter a really trying season of his life with the development of his entire family, right? And so it's like God was saying, I see you, and guess what you're going to be about? Guess what your role is going to be in my grand plan? He's provider. He went ahead and he established the means by which which people for all time would be able to be in right relationship with him. He loves the people he created, and his grace compels him to continually reach down into the chaos or into the messes like he did with Jacob and still does with us. So the truth I hope we can see is that God's grace is not dependent on anything other than his own character. And aren't we thankful, (laughs) right? So I guess I would just pause to ask you if maybe you need to be reminded of any of these things that you saw on the list about who God, God is, maybe in the midst of your circumstance. Um, maybe there's something trying. Maybe there's something that you, when you look at yourself or the people around you or the world around you, it, it's discouraging. Maybe looking at who God is will change your perspective like it did for Jacob in that moment. So then we proceed on, and we get to see several chapters talking about Jacob's family. 
The verse, or chapters 29 through 31 cover a span of about 20 years of Jacob's life. And boy, lots of things happened. Um, you know, he, this is when he fell in love with Rachel and then thought he was going to get Rachel and ended up with Rachel's sister. So then he finished out just a week with Leah and, um, and then promised to work another seven years but got to marry Rachel right then. So now he finds himself in one week time span with two wives. Um, and they are bitter at each other and competing for his affection and jealous. And um, Rachel is barren. And they, he then has children with these two women and their two servants, which makes me scratch my head and go, how is that okay? <laughs> um, again, not customs that I understand at all. <laughs> um, and then he has this relationship with Laban. Laban, who, I mean, it's very ironic, I think, because Jacob was such a deceiver and he was just completely duped by a deceiver. <laughs> and so maybe he was getting his in that moment. But there was no relationship of trust. It was just mistrust and deceit all along. And then there was the, the, the crazy thing of, um, of the livestock. And of the, you know, advancing or, or populating with livestock that in scientific ways that could never be explained, right? The stick, and then they all come out spotted, and I, I couldn't even understand it. So, um, so all of this happens in this span, and he gets to the point where he packs up his large family and possessions and prepares to flee Laban and return to his father's land. So there's so much opportunity in, the, in this span to see God's faith, faithfulness over these years despite the human failings on everybody's part. His life was just riddled with deceit and anxiety. Think of how anxious he was. There was tension in all relationships, competition and control. And um, all throughout, however, in chapter 31, Jacob, we see him. I love this because he's proclaiming God's faithfulness as he made, first made his case to his wives about why they needed to leave and then later to Laban. He was clear that his prosperity was 100% dependent on God and on God's provision. So I've just included a few um, verses up here that I just wanted to spotlight how Jacob was spotlighting God, just like what we're doing today. Jacob said in chapter 31, verse 4, he said, But the God of my father has been with me. And then in 31.7, when talking to his wives, he says, Your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. So he's calling out God, the name of God. And then chapter 31.9, he says, Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And then I think it culminates in 31.13 when he, God called him out of Laban's hand saying, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. I love this because Jacob's life was being redeemed. He was in a season of trying, of, of desperation, of tension and anxiety. And he started turning and proclaiming God's faithfulness. And we can see that he, I mean, he's starting to grow. His life is being redeemed. It's promising, maybe. <laughs> um, he looked to God. He proclaimed the truth about God. And then I think it gave him courage to, to step out in faith, take all of his possessions and family, and venture back to his homeland, knowing that his brother might be there. And so that's then where we transition to next. Um, 
Jacob's now in chapter 32 about to face his greatest fear thus far. And that's his estranged brother. The last time he saw Esau, Esau was, was out to kill him, remember? And so understandably, he was anxious. Um, so he was anxious, afraid. He now had quite a, quite a lot, right? He had a lot of possessions, a lot to lose. Um, and so he, we see him employing some of his old tactics. He starts with self-protection where he puts together envoys of his people that are going to go ahead of him. And they, he says, just go out there. You go first. And then when you see my brother, say, oh, your brother Jacob's back behind. And then the next wave comes. Oh, and don't forget your brother Jacob. So he's way back behind and he's, he's just trying to protect himself. Um, we see in verse 7 of 32, it says, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and said, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape it. So he's in self-preservation mode, right? But then in verses 9 through 12, we see him pleading with God. He's, he's admitting his unworthiness. He's reminding God of the promises that God has made to him. He's saying, Lord, you told me that you would surely do good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea. So he's, he remembers the promises. He, he, he had that moment in Bethel. He built a, a mile marker and a um, monument at that point to remind him. And he's calling on that, which is a beautiful thing. We have to do that, don't we? Hold on to the promises. So he's, he remembers and he calls out, but then he also continues to bribe he's still gonna put together a whole bunch of gifts and and it says in verse 13 he took a present for his brother and then itemizes a lot of stuff that he was going to send to his brother right to try and win his approval so he's still striving to save himself he's striving for the approval of others he believes God and he calls upon his name but he also resorts to his own devices I mean can anybody relate to that we know the truth, we know the promises, and we still have our tactics that they sometimes work. Why do we go back to them? I'm not quite sure. So the wonderful news is that God knows this. And he was with Jacob that night, and after he'd sent all the waves of gifts and his, he'd sent his family off somewhere, um, he was alone. And verses 24 through 30 are going to be on your screen, and I'm just going to go ahead and read it because I, again, love this passage. It says, And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let go. Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. <laughs> He's persistent, that Jacob. And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Now after this, he arose and finds Esau approaching with 400 men, but... This time, the word says that he went out in front of his wives and his family to greet Esau. That is a miracle. And then another miracle happened. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, and their relationship was restored. That, I just think we have to 
proclaim the goodness of God right there because in this moment for Jacob and Esau, God is a redemptive God who went before both of them, softened both of their hearts, and he is a God who restores even the most broken of relationships. Such a personal look at this slice in Jacob's of life. So when we apply our lenses, we then look and see, well, what does this say about God's plan to redeem his people? Well, I think that we learn that God is working out his plan in the moments of wrestling, which leads us to finding our true identity in him. So Jacob believed God, and he even obeyed in faith to leave Laban and return to his father's land, and he fell back into his own ways, and he struggled. Um, He relied on his own strength, his wealth, his cowardly tactics, and his striving to try and win affections. But God met him so personally, and then God wrestled with him. And in the process, he redefined his identity. He came out of that experience with a brand new name. Um, His hip socket out of joint was his reminder. So I think this is God's plan for redemption, that through wrestling, he ushers people into their true identity in him alone. No longer was Jacob striving for Esau's approval. He was freed up to just walk confidently into that next meeting, into that moment. He trusted God finally. And as it turns out, God had been working in Esau's heart as well because he ran to meet him. So it's just the miracle of God's redeeming work in the hearts of those who follow him, then and now. So what do we learn about God's character in this example? Again, I just have a few to get us started. You could go on and on. But we, God's power is made perfect in weakness. And so he invites our wrestling. And in fact, he calls it prevailing. Verse 28, you might have noticed this. It says, Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Do you see that irony? God says that Jacob has prevailed when in fact he had crippled him with a touch. It was when Jacob was weak that he firmly landed in his true identity and trusted God and thus prevailed. It reminds me of what we read in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9 when Paul writes of a similar struggle. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. He was referring to the thorn in his flesh, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So God is powerful and sovereign, and he invites our wrestling in order to lead us to rest in our true identity in him. I love that. Um, I hope you do too. We also see in in this moment of wrestling that God's the healer of broken relationships. He works in the hearts of men and women in ways to restore relationships in ways that are totally impossible for humans to do. Esau and Jacob are an example. God is ever-present and available to be called upon at all times. Here Jacob was alone and riddled with fear and anxiety, and God was with him. He was already there with him, just waiting for the wrestling, right? And he's pursuing all people at all times. His love and kindness extends to those who claim him as Savior and those who haven't yet. I think that Esau was a great example of this. Esau was not a chosen person during Jacob's history at least as far as we know from this biblical narrative. However, we've just read that his heart had been softened by God so much that he ran to meet his brother. I think that's really incredible to imagine. Um, His love is for all people, past, present, and future, and he's always at work. 
we, we do know from our study that when we looked in Hebrews later that um, Esau apparently did not choose to repent. And so that was a little extra information that we didn't have from the biblical account in Genesis. Um, but, and we, so I don't know. I don't know what Esau's response was to God or not. If he did, only God knows. But how beautiful that God was working. He softened Esau's heart in that moment and restored a relationship. So the truth I hope we can just grasp onto is that it's in our weakness that we find our true identity in God. The wrestling brings us to a place where we recognize our finiteness and have opportunity to prevail, that's such a great word, by letting go of the striving against God and settling into him. So that actually happened for Jacob because then the next moment that we see God just intervening in his grace was Jacob's second visit to Bethel in chapter 35. And this is the last one we'll look at. Jacob yielded to God. He laid down all foreign gods. He returned to the place where he'd met with with God 20 years prior at Bethel. And some of the verses that I see here that I've put on the screen for us to just remind us of that section. Um, Verse 3 says, Let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Then he was renamed by God in verse 10. It says, no longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And then God reconfirms the promise and says in 11, God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So God was able to reach down into Jacob's messy, depraved life and transform his heart for his purposes and glory. So the, I, the reason that we focus on God when we study this, his word and these stories in Genesis is that that's still how he works today. Even in our crazy world, does anybody feel like it's a crazy world? Is it crazier than it used to be? It feels that way to me. <laughs> um, we can believe God, that same God, for today. We can trust that he's still about that same work in our moment in history, all around the world, even in places and situations that seem godless to us. Remember, we have a finite understanding. He does not. So these three lenses that we've used today, we can also use to just spotlight our own experience, our own slice of history, and our own walk with God right now. So the question might be, how is God working in your unique moment in history through your life experience? Each of us has been created in the image of God with unique gifts and callings and um, opportunities and resources and sphere of influence um, in our work, community, church, beyond. And this is our slice. This is our place where God has put us. And so when you consider the ebbs and flows of your own journey in life, how have you seen God's glory? How do you see it right now? The next question is, how do you see his redemptive plan unfolding for you personally in your church and in the world? So looking all around. In other words, how are you experiencing him? How are those around you experiencing him? How is he expanding your understanding of him and by maybe exposing you to people that are different than you? Taking time to watch for how God is intervening, how he's reaching down into the chaos or the mess and pressing into understanding some of that is an opportunity to spotlight him in a really big way. And it increases your faith and it mobilizes you to want to go and be a part of what he's doing. 
So what are you learning about God's character right now? Perhaps it's as you study Genesis. I hope that it is. I hope that as you're studying, maybe you're wrestling with him. <laughs> I, I, like, like I have been. Um, if it's you, I encourage you to press into that wrestling and ask the questions. Because it turns out that God can handle all of that. <laughs> We know that, right? So we can ask him the things like, why is that so, that's so confusing. Help me to see you in this, God. Um, I'm finding that that's been my favorite part of preparing for today is the questions I had and the uh, trying to understand. Um, and then realizing that I don't understand and that's okay too <laughs> because um, God is God and I am not. I don't have to be afraid of looking into those places that seem confusing or, or even disturbing. His power is made perfect in these places where I find myself limited and where you might find yourself limited. So I'm going to continue asking the questions and continue wrestling and continue hopefully having great conversations with you. Like maybe you'll have tonight in your circles or like we've been having in leader circles and um, I've been having with my husband. It's just these things where I go, huh, did you ever think? And then we, we learn something new. So the truth is that um, as we've looked at the highs and lows of Jacob's life and we've looked at the things that cause us to scratch our heads a little bit, it probably stirs up more questions. I didn't give you a lot of answers tonight about the things you might have come in asking. Um, But hopefully you found comfort in just knowing, and I've found comfort in knowing that God's grace is not dependent on anything but his own character. So it's okay to press in to the messy parts. The, the truth is it's, it's not all buttoned up. It's not all black and white. There aren't really clear-cut answers um, except that God loves us, he's pursuing us, and we have opportunity to be in relationship with him through Jesus. So just to conclude, I'd love to put some of those things that we've learned about God back up on the screen just to, to end with looking at him. We know that God is ever-present sovereign. His promises do not fail. His faithfulness is not dependent on the behavior, heart, or circumstances of people. He's kind. He's a provider. He loves the people he created. His grace compels him to continually reach down into the chaos. He's the healer of broken relationships. He is ever-present and available to be called upon at all times, and he's pursuing all people at all times. So let's thank him for that. Dear Jesus, oh, I just thank you so much for the truth that we've been able to spotlight this evening. I thank you for the way you've met me personally, and I pray for the ways that you're meeting each of the women in this room and maybe listening someday in the future on podcasts. Lord, I just pray that as we press into the parts of Genesis and then Exodus and beyond, that that we don't understand or the things that maybe we haven't ever had the courage to look at very carefully in the past, I pray that you'd meet us in those places and you'd just shine so brightly and you would draw us to yourself and our faith would be increased even as we look at the hard things. And Lord, I thank you that you are so faithful that you continually reach down into the places where we are. You know the, the slice of history that we each have and you know where we need you. And I pray that we would, just, we would just learn to continually turn to you and lift you high. So I thank you, Lord. Thank you that you're here with us. And I just pray that you'd be with each of these individuals, each of these ladies as they go out and continue talking about your word. Would you open our hearts to you? In your name, amen.